Welcome to the Satellite and New Space Matters podcast, a series of interviews with key leaders throughout the industry, all brought to you by the Satellite and New Space team at NUCO, a specialist global recruitment and executive search firm. Welcome to the Satellite and New Space Matters podcast. Your host today are myself, Andrew Ball. I've also got Katish Meading alongside me, um, and we're delighted today to be joined by Jan Sperman, who is CCO and co-founder of Rocket Factory Augsburg. So Jan, as I mentioned, is the CCO and co-founder of RFA, who are a new space launcher business providing low-cost access to space with their dedicated small sat launchers. Jorn started his career in mission operations and project management for the German Aerospace Center uh, before moving into a number of senior commercial positions with Outran and MT Aerospace before, of course, setting up RFA. So welcome to the show, Jorn. Great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So to get us started, um, we always love to ask our guests the same question. How did you get into the new space industry? Uh, for me, space was already a fascinating thing since I was a kid. Um, I went a lot to a lot of vacations with my family in Scandinavia, and uh, there's a very dark sky. You can see a lot of stars, which is quite untypical here where we are in Germany. And uh, that fascinated me, and I got stuck to astronomy and always looked up to it, which made it clear for me, okay, I want to do something in that area. And uh, I was more prone to the, let's say, engineering and, and practical things of um, the school subjects, and which is why it was clear for me I want to do something in engineering that. That's where I went, space engineering. And yeah, that brought me through the different roles that you have seen. I was excited by um, the change in the system overall of space, right? I was working long with MTA in the, the what you would call old space or established space industry um, on the bigger launch systems. And uh, yeah, a lot was ongoing in the US and we thought, hey, timing is right. Maybe that you can enforce such a dimension shift also in Europe with the agencies and uh, why not start it privately finance launches and development. Now looking back four and a half years, I think it was a good decision. Definitely. It seems like you saw a, a gap in the market and decided not to wait for someone else to fill it. Why not fill it yourself? Fantastic. Um, so we're going to stay in the past just for a little bit. Um, and I mean, who would you say has been the biggest influence or someone who's had the biggest impact on your career? Wow, this is a very tough question. I don't know. It's really tough to say. So if you, if you think about an idol in business, uh, I really love the products that Apple is doing and uh, what Steve Jobs did it and how he did it. And I find it quite inspiring. The level of detail he had on the on products and uh, obviously he had a very good uh, team with Iron and on the design side and uh, how he managed to get these products into the market and also put topics into the market which no one uh, was ever considering using like the iPod or the iPhone and uh, how much that actually changed our life overall, I find that really uh, breathtaking. Yeah, it's it's uh, something that I, I always aspired. I only use uh, eye products for myself. I, I switched from Windows a couple of years ago because I couldn't stand it anymore. But that's 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 a different decision. And beyond that, I would say uh, the uh, probably the bosses that I had and the so the leadership persons with which I worked in the different companies um, in Altron, they were very specific people, very brilliant. Um, so they shaped my perspective on how to do business uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Great. Fantastic. Um, so look, we're going to touch now, uh, we've been in the past for a little bit, we're going to touch now a little bit more on the present and the future. So Katia, over to you. Yeah, and I can't agree more. I'm definitely an iPhone person. Um, so what do you think is the most exciting thing about the satellite and new space industry right now? 
Right now, I think that we see a lot of that coming to life. Uh, we have been through the last five years, uh, a lot of heard a lot of plans, a lot of ideas, and now we see more and more companies actually getting operational. Um, and the public outreach around that is getting bigger and bigger. And I think the big, that's something that we need quite a lot, that general public, general awareness about space activity increases. And with more and more things being successful, um, great examples that we have in there out of last year, like, uh, I don't know, a lot of starting launches where you could see them like a, uh, like a bird chain on, on the sky or the Artemis mission several times delayed, but finally launched. So we're back going to the moon as, as humankind. I think there are quite some fascinating things happening in space overall. A lot of successful things also in the new space sector. And that gives a great boost to the overall evolution that these forecasts of everything is really just exploding and really seems to be coming true. Brilliant. And I, I think since you've mentioned Artemis, I can guess uh, what your answer to this will be. But what are you most excited about for the future of the industry? For the future, to see it growing, right? What I believe, um, why was Amazon so, so successful? Let me just take an example. I don't know if you remember, but in the beginning, I think they were scanning books, right? So in that sense, that was the first product that they did. And it's crazy what they are today. It's a huge platform that everyone can use because it's just so simple. And that's something that we need to achieve in space that it becomes a thing where you and I and just everyone, my grandmother, my kids, uh, five years old or whatever, um, can do something there. It must get cheap, it must get simple, and really people need to understand what's the use out of things they can do in space. And I think that's where the biggest uh, growth potential for the future is. Brilliant. Um, yeah, could, couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's something that unfortunately the space industry hasn't necessarily been greater in the past I think with the advent of you know the commercialization of, of new space it's finally bringing you know that as a as a realistic possibility and opportunity and you know especially as we see the next generation of you know industry leaders coming through it's going to be really really interesting and exciting to see how how that continues to to develop um so well, look thank you so much for that you uh, we've kind of touched a little bit you know on on you in the past and kind of industry sort of now and in the future, I suppose that brings us to, you know, our, our topic that matters for, for discussion today. Um, and, you know, given that the RFA are a launch business, um, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, this is one of the areas of the industry that we've seen some of the biggest changes uh, and some of the biggest developments over the last few years, you know, especially in kind of removing that bottleneck that, that has, you know, existed there for, for a long time. You know, we've seen reusable launch vehicles, dedicated small sat launchers, um, you know, the, the advent and growth of ride sharing, new launch locations, um, and less of a reliance on, you know, just a few small companies from just a few small locations. Um, we'd love to hear, you know, more of, of your thoughts on the commercialization of that launch market, specifically in Europe. Um, and I suppose what you think the biggest impact from this will be on, on the wider industry? Mm -hmm. So to answer the last question first, as a teaser, I think we can do much more things in space if we spend budgets more efficiently, right? And if you go to the start of the question, we can look at the US, they did that a couple of years ago, um, when they, after the shuttle program ended, they couldn't fly anything anymore into space, they decided, cool, we don't continue developing these things ourselves. And they started commercial competitions um, to say, we want to buy that service. A seed by for an astronaut, 50 million euros to space, who wants to go for it? And you think that is something we should also do in, in Europe, um, that the space agency the European defines a demand of uh, what they really need in terms of service and, I don't know, put an put in invitation to tender out and see who applies. Yeah? You can do 
you can do that. If no one replies, cool, you learn, then you can do it yourself again, but maybe there's a chance that really this happens. And you think we had a great point in time for specifically in the space transportation industry in Europe, that there are a couple of alternatives now rising. There's, uh, depending on how you count, some people say there's 20 companies in Europe. I would say there may be three to five credible ones which are well-financed, um, which could get to commercial alternatives in the beginning on a small scale, but small scale can grow. These companies would have the competence about launch systems, ground infrastructure, spaceports, and all the activities to put things into space. And that is what the, the governmental institutions should leverage now, that they see uses to destroy the monopolies that we currently have on launch in Europe and try to create commercial competition from that. And spending several billion on launch system developments right now Maybe they can do it for half the money. Maybe they can uh, change the investment market in Europe as well, that they can get away with half the money, right? Only co-financing it by two thirds or half or whatever. And with that, there will be lots of budget left to do more of the, I would I would say even more of the reasonable things, right? Uh, to buy a bus is a stupid thing or to decide how you should develop it. The bus is just nuts for an agency that has to look after the inhabitants of this uh, beautiful continent, right? They should rather take care of uh, what service can I deliver to public in terms of connectivity or Earth observation activity to better mo model or understand climate change and how to influence it for the better? What other measures do we need to take? These are the things they should be working on. Or scientific exploration of the solar system or human spaceflight. These are all things where I think that's the role of an agency to do, but not necessarily thinking about how to build the bus. That's probably some people can do that commercially nowadays. And, and I suppose one question that has always, you know, sat in my brain, um, especially as we have, you know, had a commercial satellite and space market for, you know, a good few decades. Why do you think it's taken the commercial market so long to kind of enter into the launch market? You know, and I suppose, you know, you, you have to mention Elon Musk in, in this, I'm afraid, um, you know, don't want to give him too much credit, but a lot of people kind of, you know, lay, I suppose, some of the blame um, or some of the success at, at his feet, you know, someone from outside the industry coming in, making waves and proving that can it be done? Um, you know, why do you think it has taken, you know, the commercial world so long to think, no, okay, the launch market is, you know, a market that we should be, you know, active in? I believe it comes from monopolies. If you look at the different companies and the space agencies in there, you, all, you always had everywhere a monopoly situation. In the US, you had ULA. Um, in Europe, you have Ariane Group, Ariane's Bus, however you want to call it. In India, you have Andrix, in Japan, you have JAXA. So it's always institutional agencies or monopolist companies who just are fed by the system with money to do things. And there's typically very little incentive to do it uh, cheaper, right, when there's no competition. In the US, even you have these contracts, uh, if being asked to develop a specific thing, they do it cost plus, right? So all the costs that you have plus a, a fee. If I would be the manager, I would try to make it as expensive as possible, obviously, to maximize the revenues of my company. Yeah. So intrinsically, it's the wrong motivation. Even I shouldn't have said that, because obviously, I would have done it all different. Um, <laughs> but I think that was the inherent problem in here, that by that, monopolies were created and enforced, and there was no real competition, and then really... Um, satellites getting smaller, the idea for small launch systems came up. I think that's a, um, a connection. And developing something on a small scale is obviously much easier. So it was interesting for privately funded company and actually also the privately financed finance industry to actually put the money in there. And with that, 
and this was created by Elon Musk and started with uh, Dragon or Falcon 9, started with Falcon 1, which is pretty much the size of our launch system as well. Um, tried several times, failed a lot of times until he managed and got into the air, then he screwed the plans and built a bigger vehicle. So it's uh, pretty much he had that same story of what we were just discussing. And I think that's that's the main main reason why how this change came to pass and why it might also continue right now in Europe. We are exactly at the same spot just 10 years later. And and I suppose it's a you know a kind of similar or at least progression of of the question. And you you, you mentioned something you know earlier about it that you know a lot of people I suppose will argue that there's maybe 20, 25, you know, companies in Europe now, you know, looking to develop smaller um size launchers, you know, dedicated kind of Leo or, or Mio launchers, you know. Why do you think we've gone from you know those monopolies? to all of a sudden having, you know, a huge number of, of companies who are looking to kind of break, you know, break into the launcher market all at the same time. I think because a lot of people think doing launchism has become simpler and uh, it's, a, I don't, it's a fascinating and a PowerPoint easy to create. And then that's, I think, where the biggest difference comes in, going from PowerPoint to building hardware and really um, having successful traction on test milestones. So this is, this is where I would say you can count 20, you can count five, and I think this is really where the difference is. Um, who has really a good level of track record on the launch system they want to build and uh, being close to having stage level testing and getting stuff up into the air. And um, that's, that's a differentiator as of today. Um, I believe a lot of university has student teams doing rocketry, um, specifically around uh, paraffin, so it's inherently safe. Uh, no one can be harmed when doing that, which is great because students can do practical things and can learn on, on doing something really. We benefit a lot from that with the team and the people we have in here. And out of this, also the 3D printing, which makes engine manufacturing much simpler by principle. Um, this is a combination of technologies and, and changes in the education system and, and, and the technologies that made it possible to do small launch systems by a few people. And I suppose the last question, at least from, from me for, for this portion, um, what do you think, you know, is the most important development that is either, you know, in development at the moment or, or needs to happen to make sure that we have, you know, a very successful, you know, launch market here in Europe? Do you think it's incorporating, you know, greener forms of, of propulsion? Um, do you think it's, you know, one company being able to offer both large-scale um, payloads, you know, release into orbit or, you know, just small snap or with, you know, whether it's multi-orbit launches, you know, what do you think is going to be that one development that really kind of puts Europe as a, as a launcher market on the map? I believe it's not so much a technical development, but more a, uh, let's say, um, governance uh, development that we need. And that is for me to keep up the competition, right? We have in Germany a competitor which is 100 kilometers away from us. Um, I'm totally convinced that it motivates these guys very much, same as it does us, actually uh, to outperform every day on what we're doing here. And I think this is the, the holy ingredient to having great products and a great functioning business, that you have competition. And this is what we need to create on all classes of launch systems in Europe to really, let's say, I would say catch up with the US because they are more advanced than we are currently on that end, and to actually get this uh, boom into the space industry and focus on more important stuff in Europe as well. 
Well, you really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and insights, uh, you know, with us there. And uh, I have to say, I don't think I disagreed with anything that, that you said there, which is uh, at least for me uh, a novelty. So uh, thank you very much for that. And um, look, now I suppose we're going to move on to a question that, you know, I think hopefully we can all agree, especially in our industry, um, is, is something that we really need to kind of keep an eye on. So uh, Katia, over to you. Yeah, so um, we always like to, to discuss diversity in this podcast, and I think you've mentioned the great work that your team is doing, especially every day they bring their, their all. Um, so we've noticed that you guys are growing in a really impressive way at the moment. So how have you found attracting a diverse talent pool for, for RFA? I think we have a very beautiful situation here in Europe, and specifically in Germany, that we can attract talent from all over the world. Um, we are a 200 people company by now with uh, people from 35 different nationalities. And this is really the best proof of that we are trying to get the best talent wherever they live, wherever they are born, whatever cultural background they have. It really doesn't matter. It just matters that they're good at what they're doing and that they can help us getting the launch system into the air and that we jointly as a team manage to uh, have fun and uh, excel on this, what we call the Olympic sprint to the gold medal to actually get uh, that golden orbital stage you see on the launch system there uh, <laughs> up into the air and up into space. And I think this is something we have an advantage in Central Europe being very attractive in terms of uh, safety, life quality, and a lot of aspects that makes it attractive for talent. Um, something that we have actually as an advantage over the US, because in the US you need to have national citizenship if you want to work on launch systems. Here you don't, um, which makes it simpler for us to have multicultural environments and a great talent pool working for the company. Brilliant. Um, and I'm really glad to hear the success you guys have had. Um, more broadly than in the industry, what, what more do you think could be done for, for diversity, for those talent pools that perhaps aren't as easy to, to attract those sort of diverse range of cultures? Um, what more do you think we could do? Uh, in Germany, I could tell you a lot of things that we should do to actually uh, uh, make it simpler for people to come. Uh, uh, <laughs> if you go to government authority, they don't even speak English. Um, that's actually a bit issue, big issue of the German talent market. If you ask me that a lot of companies have pure working language in German, and then they say, ah, but we can't get any talent. Yeah, so what? They are looking at an 8 million people, German-speaking crowd, where they could talk to, I don't know, how many English-speaking people there around the world, but I don't know, what, 4 to 8 billion? Uh, might be a better market to actually get it for. And I think that's a change that we definitely need to do. Um, companies in the different countries changing to more international company setups, including language, but also authority processes, uh, changing it, I don't know what, having... Uh, or documentation and uh, um, let's say forms, for example, bilingual and at least in English, um, it's not a given. I was really surprised by that, but it's really, it's really, really crazy. And obviously, in uh, in STEM subjects that we are working in, uh, female ratio is really poor. Typically, uh, I think with us in the company, it's around fifteen percent, which is still not great. I think on average in engineering subjects, not too bad, but still. Uh, we we see all the public research and the the studies as well that uh, teams, including Female, even female leaders typically perform much, much better. So uh, it's it's something that we definitely want to achieve to actually have that in here to uh, be better than our competition. But yeah, quite hard. I think we can do a lot of that to motivate uh, younger female people to actually do a trade in engineering or study engineering and technical subjects. Absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more. I think everything you said about enabling the access for, for people from outside of Germany in, but also to sort of encourage the female workforce to, to start 
moving towards those STEM subjects that perhaps traditionally they, they haven't been yeah. as involved with will really revolutionize this industry. So yeah, thank you. Brilliant suggestion. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a of, I'm, a lot, I'm around a lot in exhibitions and panels and I can tell you, it's, uh, let's say, I wouldn't say old, old always calls, uh, sounds mean, but let's say these people are typically older than I am and male. Uh, so that's the group of people that you would meet there. I've witnessed it and uh, hopefully though in our lifetime it'll be a very different story by you know the time that you're retiring. No no not at all. Brilliant um, so look we're a really curious bunch here um, we like to know sort of about the man behind the career we don't just want to, to hear about just you know RFA and the great work you've done um, so we're going to bring it back now to uh, Andrew and he's going to ask you a little bit more about, about you. So yeah, thanks, Katia. Uh, as she mentioned, you know, we've, we've learned a little bit about you already, but we like to sort of scratch uh, beneath the surface just a little bit more. Um, so might be an easy question to answer, might be a very difficult question to answer. Um, but we like to ask everyone about their perfect weekend. If you could wave that magic wand and create 48 hours of pure bliss for yourself, what do you think that weekend would look like? Um, to receive beautiful emails from work, which is typically a part of my weekend as well, but only beautiful <laughs> ones and not the bad ones. And these could actually be, be gone. And beyond that, um, spending time, spending time with family and uh, active. Uh, I have been playing field hockey for my life since 35 years. So I typically also want to do some exercise over the weekend and whatever it is, if it's going skiing with family, bouldering, playing football, whatever, or just running, running alone. Um, something of that needs definitely be in that weekend. And then some some nice time with family and maybe nice dinner with friends and um, to relax, to exchange, to have a time off in your brain to not think about the work emails that you answer in the morning and uh, to really recharge batteries, right? It rains over the weekends and uh, it needs to be recharged over the weekend. That's very clear. I have to say, I think you're the first person to have mentioned anything about work in, in their perfect weekend. Uh, <laughs> so, so I don't I don't know how true that is, but uh, <laughs> but I'm, no, I'm RFA sure. Is, RFA is a part of our life. I mean, we initiated that. It's four and a half years now. It's it's a big part of our life and a part of our half. I typically say it's my second family when I'm here in Augsburg and the other families at home. So it, is, it really is a bit like that. And uh, it, we can circumvent that. It keeps us busy a bit over the weekend as well. Absolutely, absolutely. But look, it's important, obviously, as you say, to find time, spend time with the family, relax, recharge, bit of exercise, running around. Um, sounds like a decent weekend. Um, so we're going to stay with the theme of learning a little bit more about you. Um, and now we move into what is quite definitely my favourite part of, of the podcast um, every episode. Um, Katia, over to you for the quick fire round. So no clues here. You'll have to think on your feet. Um, we'll start you off with an easy one. Plane or train? Can you repeat? Plane or? Train. Oh, plane. Brilliant. Netflix or Disney Plus? Disney Plus. Oh, lovely. Night out or comfy night in? Night out. Nice. City break or beach holiday? Ha, huh, that's a tough one. I would say beach holiday. Me too. Uh, favorite film? Favorite film or oh, Matrix, but one, the old one. Nice, brilliant. Uh, cats or dogs? Again? Cats or dogs? Cats. I have none of it, but I would. Yes. <laughs> um, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? 
Portugal. Ooh. If you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would that be? If I can have one, one last meal. Mm, not last meal, but if you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life. <laughs> Are we talking meal about eating or? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. One last meal, one meal of my life. Wow, that's crazy. What's <laughs> my, favorite? my favorite meal is pasta. I'm really into pasta. Pasta Bianco, without anything, just salt and olive oil. Nice, brilliant. Um, what's your go-to karaoke song? Go-to? Karaoke song. Karaoke song. Uh, time <laughs> of my life. Ooh, I don't think we've had that one yet. No, I think that's the first outing for that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we like to ask everybody in the satellite new space industry this one. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? That's an easy one. Elon, he has something in the air and the other guy doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard Good that answer. one before. Good answer. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, yeah, that was great. Uh, thank you. So really good to get an insight of you. We always ask the same final question. So I'll hand it over to uh, Andrew, who, who will ask you the same thing we ask every guest. So yeah, we are down to, unfortunately, our final question now for, for today's episode. And as Katia mentioned, it's, it's always the same. Um, and it, it's one that I think we always get a lot of great insights from. Um, so if you could give just one piece of advice to someone who was looking to enter the space industry, what would you tell them? Work hard. You're typically getting better. Space is a small industry, right? When I started studying, my prof said, why do you use space, not aerospace? Space only 5% of the people who are starting here get a job finally. Why don't you take the 95% thing? And I think that what it comes down to, so you need to be out of 20 people, you need to be the best one. And that typically comes if you work longer hours and harder than just anyone else. That increases this chance actually a lot. So creating that passion, living the passion that you really want to do only comes with doing hard work and doing more than average everyone else. I think that's great advice that could be applied pretty much anywhere in this industry. So yeah, excellent. Um, thank you so much for your time, Jorn. It was great to hear all about you, about RFA. We can't wait to see what's next for you guys. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and give us a rating. It really helps these stories to be found and enjoyed by more people. For more information about NUCO, we can be found at www.nuco-group.com. That's N-E-U-C-O-group.com.